This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. Poems are so pressurised by all the stuff that's trying to get in, but you can't let it all in for all sorts of reasons. And so you... Yeah, that's a lovely idea. You fend it off. Yeah. But it's still knocking there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review. I'm here today with the poet Julian Stannard. Thanks for joining us, Julian. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Just by way of introduction, Julian has published four collections of poetry, the most recent being What Were You Thinking, published in 2016 by CB Editions. Others include his first collection, Rena's War, which was published in 2001, and The Parrots of Villa Gruber Discover Lapis Lazuli, which was published in 2011. He teaches English and creative writing at the University of Winchester and prior to that lived in Genoa for a number of years where he taught English and American literature. Christopher Reed says on the back of Julian's most recent book, there's an air of luxurious melancholy about these poems, which I thought was a lovely and very apt description. Julian, I thought you could get us started by reading one of your poems, um, Boxing Day. Okay, uh, thank you for that. Thank you for the introduction. Boxing Day. The dogs are going crazy. I think mother slipped them some amphetamines. A truly enormous ham is being cooked and the dogs are becoming idiotic and psychotic. My ex-wife is late, which is good and not so good. Mother pulsates. Welcome, ex-wife. Have some ham. I watch mother slicing, slicing slicing two pieces of ham for ex-wife and three pieces of ham for me oh bethlehem oh bethlehem in england we eat boiled ham mother says do you like boiled ham mother asks ex-wife ex-wife says i have been to west ham i may have taken the wrong line after the enormous ham mother shouts pudding and off she walks to the special shed. I am left with ex-wife. Shall we dance? No. Water has flowed under the bridge, says ex-wife. Not enough, I'm thinking. Flee whilst you can, ex-wife. Flee. Mother's walking back to the house. The dogs have conked out in some post-amphetamine afternoon lockdown. Mother appears with a trifle An enormous trifle. In England, Mother says, we eat trifle. Thank you very much. Just quite hard trying to (laughs) stop from laughing while you're reading. When I first read the poem as a submission, it, it grabbed me straight away. I mean, I think I'm predisposed to be drawn to poems featuring animals. But then there's a mother with a capital M, um, there's amphetamines. And then before you even sort of got excited about those, there's a ham. So um, I suppose I'm wondering, where does a poem like this come from? I mean, that's obviously such a big question. Like, what came first, the dogs, the ham, the mother? How does any poem start for you? Well, I suppose to talk about this particular poem... I have to say, I mean, often poems come out of things that sort of just kind of happen, which I know is a rather lame uh, response. I can't really go into enormous amount of detail because, of course, the story is just would go on forever. But I do have an ex-wife, and she does have a tendency to kind of turn up in England around the, the Christmas period. So Boxing Day, lunch with my 
mother, uh, who is quite a character, and my ex-wife already takes on a certain kind of... My ex-wife is Italian. Yeah. So it takes on certain kind of interesting characteristics. I kind of rather shrink away from it and, and sort of observe the happenings and try to, to not get too involved with either. And my mother lives in the countryside in Suffolk and there are always dogs around, hundreds of dogs. I mean, she's just got another one, I think. And there's a certain kind of very traditional way of eating, so things like boiled ham and things of that kind yeah. seem to happen a lot, and trifles and, and all that kind of thing. And the thing about trifles as well, which I would certainly not have thought about this when I was writing the poem, in Italian, trifle is called zuppa inglese, which means English soup. I realised afterwards that there was a certain almost congruity in having trifle in this poem, which, yeah. which I didn't plan, but it's just afterwards I thought, oh, yes, the Italians call it English soup. You know. I think those kind of coincidences quite often happen in writing. That they're probably not coincidences in some depth of your mind. You've known that and it's kind of found its way into it. Well, it's wonderful, isn't it, when you find sort of accidental connections and um, attachments and things that just seem to slip into a poem, almost as if it, they're words which are just hanging around on the outside and they, and they pop in. You know, there's a, Donald Davey, you know, the, the poet critic, I mean, he talks about poems as being these slightly contained vehicles in which there are lots of material trying to get in and you're fending it off. And I quite like this idea that poems are so pressurised by all the stuff that's trying to get in, but you can't let it all in for all sorts of reasons. And so you... Yeah, that's a lovely you idea. fend it off. Yeah. But it's still knocking there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can sort of see that happening in Boxing Day because you've got, obviously, the festive period is a time when there's all sorts of sort of stuff, literal stuff and foodstuffs and social stuff's going on and you've somehow just pared all that down to these like few key but very kind of amusing and absurd markers like the the boiled ham and the the mother and the ex-wife I really like the way that mother and ex-wife haven't got articles attached so it's just like ex-wife have some ham <laughs> I think it somehow it takes the reader along with it somehow makes the reader feel like you know it's happening to you or something I mean, I think that poem came quite quickly. As you know, poems sometimes take a long time and other times they seem to come out quite quickly. I think I had to deal quite a lot with the conversational exchanges, you know, so I think probably at some, uh, some point it might have been a bit longer and you're sort of, you know, looking at the sort of dialogue and um, just trying to trim it down as much as possible. And, but I think the general idea of it came quite quickly so again that's it's always interesting isn't it when things come quickly and some things come slowly either case is okay how does that work for you do you have a sort of regular pattern or do you tend to write in bursts very irregular I would say so I mean I was in London yesterday in Seven Sisters which is not an area that I'm often in and I just started writing a poem about a fictional family of six sisters and um, I, don't know, I sat in a cafe and just wrote quite a lot about this family, Catholic family. I mean, it was completely made up, you know, Catholic family, very traditional Catholic family who had six daughters, so they became six sisters. 
And what happened to number seven? <laughs> well, this is it, because um, in my little sort of strange narrative world, the six sisters, you know, clung to each other very much and always lived with each other. And eventually, somewhat later in life, they took on, they bought a, a spacious property in Seven Sisters. <laughs> but the, I, I had to get a, a taxi to Seven Sisters. I, I, I don't usually get, yeah, I got an Uber taxi. And the, the guy was Ethiopian, very interesting and chatty. And when we got to Seven Sisters, he, he couldn't find the station. He said, oh, it's very near here, very near. And then anyway, this lady was walking past, so he stopped and he unwound the window. And then, of course, using that kind of address, he said to her, sister, can I ask you where the station is, you see? And I thought, that's the seventh sister, you see. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> so, so it was like kind of, I almost felt that I'd had this sort of little kind of almost problem about six and seven but by the end of the day had been resolved (laughs) so that's a poem that I'm writing now I don't know whether it will come to fruition because as you know sometimes you start off and you're very enthusiastic about it and then a little later you realize it's not really working is it so but no you've got to start somewhere though haven't you yeah and it's it's really interesting to hear about that sort of moment of inspiration for want of a better word it seems quite fitting that you mentioned that in the context of your work and how it I read it in that it it's often like the sort of curiosities of the English language or kind of odd names or very ordinary seeming situations that are suddenly twisted into something that's quite sort of absurd and so this isn't really a question but <laughs> just an observation <laughs> I suppose. Well no I mean I think all those things that I suspect are fairly you know I think poets love names don't they and and I love place names whether it's in Italy, where I lived quite a long time, or whether it's in England, I mean, I just think Seven Sisters, you know, Elephant and Castle. I mean, I just, I think they're just um, almost irresistible. Yeah. So I find myself, although I don't live in London, I spend quite a lot of time in London. So when I'm using public transport, I find the underground is just full of delightful possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of language, and you know, the fact that you're suddenly with all these thousands of people for a very short period of time and then and then off you go again you know i remember seeing probably because i'm very myopic but there was a sign it really said you know thank you for using the underground something like that it was just a sort of i read it as thank you for coming into the underworld <laughs> and, and i just thought oh i like that you know? yeah but i always feel a little bit that it's a bit like you go into the underworld and you come up Mm. possibly with some collected observation or something like that. Yeah. And, of course, there's that poem, very naughty poem, isn't it, by Neil Rowlinson? Have I got the... Oh, yeah, but the My Wives. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So so for a while, I think, after I'd read that poem, of course, that's just another body of of thoughts. That I mean, I think it's a very wonderfully mischievous poem. But, yeah. But, again, it's this idea of the underground suddenly becoming a strange free-for-all under the surface. And then you pop up in Elephant and Castle and carry on with your normal life. It's, yeah. it's just very odd. I like it, though. I like that oddness. You know. I thought it was interesting what you were saying also about the misreading, the sign, because misreadings can be quite sort of fruitful. I think I may have read a poem of yours that plays a bit on misreadings in terms of having an Italian partner or living in Italy and I was wondering 
how your time spent abroad if that affected your work in some way because I have a sense that your work to me feels very English in some ways in terms of its reference points although there's obviously a lot of references to Italian culture a lot of the social situations and the sort of foods like the boiled ham and the trifle the awkward way English people negotiate social situations stands out so I sort of wondered if does living abroad bring that out more or do you have any well I mean I I I mean I'd have to say immediately that the 10 years or so that I lived in Genoa were I think quite significant I mean I was about 22 when I fetched up in Genoa so obviously just being that age I think wherever you live is is sort of pretty good (laughs) but anyway living in Italy I didn't speak Italian when I first I got a job I was by chance you know I was offered a job at the University of Genoa so I thought well that sounds great and so off I went and I think the first few years were probably the best actually because I can't remember who who said it now. I think it was Ian Forster. Actually, when you can't speak the language, the people that you interact with often somehow want to reveal the best they can. And then when you become a proficient speaker of it, you no longer can hide behind your sort of foreignness or ignorance, and suddenly you have to sort of abide by the rules. And, and I thought that was quite an interesting process. So I think the first couple of years, everything about Genoa was wonderfully weird and strange. I mean, it is an odd city, and it's a very atmospheric city. And, of course, Genoa has this incredible literary history. It's almost, uh, you know, irresistible. I mean, I find that when you're reading about 19th century poets or writers and even 20th century writers as well, I'm not surprised now when I discover that they had spent some time in Genoa. I mean, it's just a... I think it was an extraordinary crossroads, you know. So all of that was really interesting to me because it all had to be discovered. And so, although I was employed as a lecturer, I really was a kind of student. You know, I was a student of Italian culture and the Italian language. The, the students probably taught me more Italian than I taught them English. You know, so, <laughs> uh, and um, then I had to discover, you know, slowly but surely, the sort of rich literary history of the city. Then I began to read Italian and I would come across Italian poets, of course, and that was also really exciting. There was one Italian poet called Giorgio Caproni and he remains my kind of favourite Italian poet because he wrote so much about Genoa. So in other words, I could go to that piazza, I could catch that funicular I could do this or do that, and think, oh, yes, yes, that, I remember, you know, Caproni wrote a poem about this place, or whatever. And that was quite unusual. I felt it was unusual, because Italian poetry had been presented to me mostly through, say, Montale, who, of course, is very complex, very difficult, and complicatedness seemed to be the purpose of Italian poetry, whilst Giorgio Caproni seemed to be a little bit more observational. So Genoa is a very hilly city, so you often have to take things like lifts or funiculars to get from one part of the city up to another part of the city. And there's a wonderful poem of his, which is about taking the lift to Castelletto, which is the the rather smart area on top of the city. And more or less, I gloss, he starts off by saying that when when I go to paradise, I will take the lift to Castelletto. So it's a very simple, lovely idea, though. So it just meant thereafter that every time you got the lift 
to Castelletto, you couldn't help but think of this poem. You know? Yeah. And have you, do you do much translation from Italian? Or? I have to admit that um, I find... I love the idea of translation, and I suppose that I do it unofficially because obviously when I'm reading Italian poems, I'm kind of translating them in my head, but I've never really gone that step further and actually sort of set out a, the translation. I tried to do it with Caproni. I didn't do it very well. I think I was too young anyway. And I'm not sure about this. I think there are American volumes of Giorgio Caproni. I don't think there are any English, but I, I might be wrong about that. I haven't come across any. Yeah. There might have been something done a long time ago. I mean, I, I have a book actually at the moment coming out in Italy it had been noted by various Italians that I'd written so many poems about Genoa. Yeah. But, of course, I write them in English, obviously. So they've been translated. So they're being translated into Italian, so it's going to be a sort of, like, bilingual Oh, that's book. great. Well, yes, and it was quite complicated finding a translator. And luckily, I, I've got Massimo Baccigalupo, who's, a, you know, quite a well-known translator, but... People had said to me, well, why don't you just translate them? And I just I just couldn't. You know, my Italian just wouldn't be good enough you yeah. know, to translate it. It would just be embarrassingly bad. So, <laughs> But I just love this idea of the movement of languages. The other thing, of course, that I had to come to terms with living in Genoa, you know, up the road, you know, 20 minutes on the train, you have Rapallo. And, of course, there was all that whole Ezra Pound connection with Rapallo and as a, a student of English you know Ezra Pound was sort of really off limits and I I didn't really know his work and I sort of deplored his general politics and we never really studied Ezra Pound at university and then suddenly I was living in a place where elderly Italians had known Ezra Pound and you know they'd had conversations with Ezra Pound and Rapallo has taken him as their sort of poet. And, you know, so he's a, a very sort of significant figure in that part of Italy. And, of course, Pounds, Cantos, I think the really exciting thing about them is the fact that he uses so many languages. I, you know, I often have students who are possibly Spanish or German or whatever, and they're doing English and creative writing. And I always say to them, you know, you have a great kind of advantage in a way because you have this other language which you can dip into. Or... Yeah. Well, you do, you use Italian phrases quite a lot in your work. Yeah. I mean, I do it with a certain, I, I used to, well, I mean, I don't care now, but I mean, I, there was a time when you would get people sometimes expressing irritation that you were using Italian as if it was a bit sort of showy-offy or something. But then... I mean, I think Italian is quite an easy language to get round, even if you don't really, you know, I mean, often you can sort of work it out. It's not like Chinese, is it, or or Russian. I mean, you can. Yeah. And I think it's just that in an Italian context and a certain expression or whatever, you just can't think of what the English would be. So therefore, it just seems that was the very expression you heard. or And, and so I quite like to take the words that you hear in the air and put them down. It's almost being faithful to to what happened in a kind of way mm, that's yeah I like that way of looking at it um I just wanted to change tack for a moment because I particularly wanted to ask you about humor humor can be so difficult to talk about because as soon as you sort of start asking about it and investigating it it becomes very serious and then <laughs> the humor of humor is lost mm. um but 
your poems obviously are very funny they have made me laugh out loud which is not that common an experience with poetry unfortunately I read somewhere that to write something erotic you need to be aroused yourself by what you're writing so I sort of wondered if writing humorously is similar like you have to be laughing as you're as you're writing <laughs> that's an interesting idea although I'm thinking about the erotic thing now because <laughs> I'm surely you might not get round to actually doing the writing I didn't know anyway um yes you're right to talk about the difficulty of humor and I'm, I, I love it when when people say they laughed out loud because you feel as if you've made a tiny little contribution to their day, possibly. You know, I mean, it's, it's probably better to laugh out than weep. But I, I, um, I really find it quite tricky because um, there are certain poems which I can think of one, like the um, Stations of the Cross. I mean, in short, it's about uh, carrying a Christmas tree to the family home in Genoa in Italy, but at a moment when there's complete family dysfunction so again we're back to kind of Christmas period yeah and I've gone to the market and picked up the Christmas tree and I'm sort of literally kind of carrying it we then did live in Castelletto up in the hills we, we'd sort oh, of made it. kind of been promoted <laughs> and so I had to get the funicular to take the Christmas tree you know carrying it back to the house and all of that anyway and um it really was actually a very wretched time. But anyway, when I read that poem out, quite often it does create quite a lot of laughter. I sometimes find that I write quite bleak poems which end up being humorous. Yeah. Which I, I don't think it was the intention. I think the intention was just to be bleak. Do you sort of see there as being a kind of tradition of humour in poetry? Are there particular poets who you admire that aspect of their work? Well, I certainly admire, you know, for example, there are lots of poets that I admire, so many that you, you almost, you know, you forget them because, but I mean, Christopher Reed, of course, is a poet that I, I was very fond of his writing. I am very fond of his writing, but I mean, as a young poet, he was one of the poets that I came across. And Hugo Williams, of course, I find that he has a, a humour that I, mm. that I like. But I also really like a very different kind of humour. I really like Salima Hill. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're quite different. I can see that there's maybe a sort of influence from Salima Hill in terms of the sort of... Sur I mean, your work isn't surreal in the way hers is, but there's a, a sort of a slanting of, of the ordinary to make it seem a bit uncanny that feels quite surreal to me. You're right. I mean, Salima Hill is just... I mean, I love her work. You know, she's just totally wacky, I think. And I just think that's... She, she sort of occupies a a room that I wouldn't, I can't quite get into because it seems to me that that's what she does so well. I, I suppose my writing is, is, is much gentler than hers. And I mean, I think this notion of absurdism is, is something that I would imagine that most poets are sort of conscious of almost. I mean, I find that most things, most of the time, seem pretty absurd, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, there's this weird business of, especially when you're working in a kind of, university where there are enormous I shouldn't really say this huge amount especially nowadays you know where as you know universities have changed a great deal and they're constantly being kind of evaluated and checked into so there's there's so much kind of oddness in university life but it's all been normalized so you know there's a department of well-being or something you know and you think goodness me you know is it really a department of well-being, you know, as you're feeling so shattered and exhausted and having to answer another email about your well-being? You know? 
<laughs> and it just seems, you know, that's just one small example, but it just seems to me that there are weirdnesses all over the place which just then become normalised and you kind of have to go along with pretending that everything's fairly kind of regular when you think, well, it's, it's just so odd. <laughs> I mean, I find that most things seem pretty odd to me. That is just one way of dealing with life, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, I think maybe having a keen sense of the absurd is a way of coping with all of this. Yeah, it's a, kind of... a coping mechanism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might ask you to read another poem now, if that's all right. I was thinking of a poem that you published in the review a while back called Buddhism, which seemed to be quite a nice companion piece to Boxing Day. Again, it, it involves my ex-wife. I mean, it's probably not... I don't know what, what, what to say about that, but anyway, that, it does. So it's called Buddhism. After years of silence, my ex-wife sends me a salami through the post. I have to sign for it, and then I take it into the flat and put it in the fridge. And then I remember a Calabrian neighbour who hung his salamis in every room in the house. He was a doctor or had at least acquired some kind of medical qualification. No luck finding a job. He practised Buddhism, and this endowed him with patience and good feelings, especially towards the salamis, which, it has to be said, gave the apartment a particular aroma. I like to keep my hand in, he said, and he took out a knife and began to chop the salami in the hallway. I take my ex-wife's salami out of the fridge and spend much of the day looking at it. Years of silence and then a salami. And I look for a sharp knife and slice off a piece which, a little nervously, I eat. Delicious. I feel like there's something about the appearance of food in your poems that feels a bit like a kind of currency that's exchanged between different characters and it sort of facilitates different sort of scenes happening. Again, I don't know if this is a, is a question as such, but I just sort of wondered about sort of the writing about food. Is it, are there certain foods that really kind of appeal to you to write about? Or? I mean, I think I probably at a certain stage also took stock of the fact that I'd kind of written about food quite a lot. It never was a plan. Again, I think there was an Italian dimension because, of course, the Italians are obsessed by food and they spend so much time talking about it. So after lunch, you know, you'll hear them talking about what they're going to have for supper. There's always a meal to be had. So that used to intrigue me. You could be on a train in Italy in a sort of compartment where you were just with strangers again strangers to themselves as well so they could be from different parts of Italy and they you know quite often that would be the conversational opening you know namely oh what kind of food do you eat in Sicily you know and that could take up the whole train journey because in Sicily they cook the fish like that but in Liguria oh no 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 we couldn't do it like that and I just think this is extraordinary you know and I would just sit there listening to this also anxious that they wouldn't suddenly realise I was English because when they discovered I was English, of course, there was just total scorn. Slightly <laughs> unfair, because, but we are going back in time a little bit where the only Italian experience of English food was always awful. So in other words, they had sandwiches somewhere in London or something like that. But of course, the food is fantastic in Italy and the markets were great. And I would love sort of fish markets, the kind of thing that we don't seem to have so much of in England and... 
the fish and the shape of the fish and the names of the fish. You know, all of that I'd find really almost wonderful in a sense. And But then, of course, you know, wherever you live, everyone has to eat, don't they? So and it just seems to me that we spend so much time, social time, with food. Yeah. Because that's the time when you're going to be with family or friends or whatever. You can have this odd situation where you've got kind of nice food but not necessarily a totally nice experience because there's some kind of conflict and and all of that I find quite intriguing in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think the table where you eat, the dining room table, is a strange theatre which can contain all sorts of experiences, good and bad. And it used to happen with my father-in-law in, in Italy he was very irascible. He was a great cook, but if you said the wrong thing, he could just burst into such fury. They're mad about rabbits in, in Liguria. And, of course, I would arrive from England and he'd spend the week telling me that on next Sunday we're going to have rabbit, coniglio. And it was almost as if this had never happened before, so you have to kind of go through that whole thing of thinking, oh, thank you, great, I'm so pleased we're having rabbits, as if you'd never had it before. <laughs> And then someone, without going into the details, uh, he got very angry, and on one occasion, the rabbit was just it just sailed out of the out of the window, oh, wow. uh, and and I just thought, <laughs> you know, all of this is just extraordinary. You know, the rabbit, where the rabbit came from. I mean, I thought they were wild rabbits. Like, that that was completely wrong. There was a, a lady in the village that just had these. She just reared them. They were like in England, they'd be pets. You know, they were they were white, fluffy rabbits, and she would feed them on basil and all sorts of herbs, you know. So for several years, I thought Bruno had been running around with a gun, you know, catching these sort of rabbits in the hills. But no, it was just coming from Cleme, the lady next door with the white rabbits. They would talk about rabbit, they're kind of ecstasy. I think that's the word, actually. Italians become ecstatic about food. It's almost a quasi-religious experience, I think. And they have these sagre everywhere, which is it's like blessings. And so you can have a, a, a sagre di whatever. If it was a fish thing, it would all be on the beach and there's free fish for everybody. And it's all being barbecued on the beach and a priest turns up and gives a blessing. And, and they can do this with every single food thing. So it could be a, a blessing of mushrooms or a blessing of rabbits, or a blessing of this. So it's just an opportunity for everyone to get together in the, in the town or the village, eat that thing freely. It's being supplied by the council or something, I don't know. Or everyone has a good time, and it's also a sort of religious, kind of blessed and, you know, a confirmation of everything that's good. Sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> we need that. Well, like yes, that yes. And, uh, yeah, and it's that kind of seriousness about food which the Italians have, which I think we're sort of also getting in England, aren't we? But it sort of happened much later, and it's, I always feel it's, it's a bit forced in England, whilst in Italy it's just a very, that's just how they are, because they're kind of born as food experts, you know, and they, and they know what they want, and that's what you eat, and you've got to eat that pasta with that sauce, and you're not allowed to mix it around a bit. And, of course, we are much more, you know, just trying things out. I, I think they think that's a little bit dangerous and uh, left field. With our boiled ham. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, of course, I, they, yes, yes, indeed. 
It's been really fabulous to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's been nice to talk. Um, but, but for so long, I don't think I've ever spent so long talking about, about my poem. So it's great. Thank you for giving me that experience. You're very welcome. Um, I thought we would just end with a final poem. So moving from we've had ham and salami, and we're now going to go back to the origin of that in your poem, Pigs in Suffolk. There are lots of pigs in Suffolk. I mean, that's one of the things in anyone that goes to Suffolk, you will notice everywhere these totally free-range pigs. It almost looks like a strange holiday camp because they have their own little like little mini bungalows. And, and I don't know how they arrange or who goes in what bungalow and whether who's sharing with what. But anyway, that's what you get. And then you see them roaming around in the field. Uh, they're huge. They always seem to be really big. I mean, they're making salami, of course, in, in Italy, which is also coming from pigs, isn't it? But, I mean, we, we have... We have uh, big, huge, free-range pigs in Suffolk and probably elsewhere, but, I mean, it's just that I go to Suffolk quite a lot. So, Pigs in Suffolk, unlikely troubadours, knights without armour, the Arthurian legends which Mallory forgot, sizzling comets falling from the sky... I like the way they hang out in pig camps, wide open fields with bungalows. They all seem to bump along together, taking their mud baths, cheering at the orchestra. Oh, ring it out, the perfect pork note. And playing chess. Did you know a Suffolk sow gave Bobby Fisher a run for his money? Oh, you speak so highly of them, it makes me think you'd like to come back as a pig. Maybe... If only for a day, I'd like to arrange my magisterial flanks under the sky. I'd like to jab my snout almost anywhere. Thank you very much, Julian. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk